Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon, and thank you for joining us uh, today here uh, at our uh, Friedrich Hayek Auditorium, as, as well as online. Uh, we are uh, uh, streaming this, as, and uh, people are following us on Twitter at the hashtag Millennial Mandate, because we're going to be talking today about a provision of the Affordable Care Act that I think has received too little attention, both because of what it does and because of what it symbolizes about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare uh, uh, as a whole. And we're going to be, uh, we're going to hear from two scholars uh, who've done research into this so-called uh, millennial mandate. You may also have heard it called a slacker mandate. I just heard yesterday this mandate referred to as the cellar dweller mandate. This is the part of the Affordable Care Act that says that uh, all qualified health plans, basically all health insurance in the United States, that offers coverage to dependents has to cover dependents up to the age of 26. Prior to the enactment of the Affordable Care Act, there were states that had similar requirements. This made that requirement nationwide so that instead of uh, young adults cycling off of their parents' plans at age 19 or age 21 or something like that, they had the... Uh, those health plans were going to be available. That dependent coverage had to be available to them until they were age 26. And we're going to be uh, we're going to hear today from two scholars who've done empirical work on the benefits and the costs of this uh, of of this millennial mandate. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Asako Maria. Uh, Asako is a, a Dr. Maria is a service fellow economist at the Agency for Healthcare Qual Research and Quality, which I think is one of few federal agencies that actually lives under a real th credible threat of having its budget cut. And actually, I think for laudable reasons. And so, so we're, we're, we're pleased to have her here. Dr. Maria obtained her PhD in economics and public policy from Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, she spent three years as a postdoctoral fellow at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. And her research primarily focuses on the Affordable Care Act and how its provisions have affected a broad range of behavioral responses, like healthcare utilization, labor market, behavior among young adults, and so forth. Uh, next, we'll hear from Jay Bhattacharya. Jay is a professor of medicine and a primary care outcomes research core faculty member at Stanford University's School of Medicine. He, had, he got his BA in economics and an MD and a PhD from Stanford University. He does occasionally leave uh, the, the campus. He spent, uh, he, he worked for three years as an economist at the RAND Corporation and taught health economics at uh, the University of California, Los Angeles. And his research focuses on the constraints that vulnerable populations face in making decisions that affect their health status, as well as a lot of research on the uh, Affordable Care Act. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Maria, and then we'll uh, head straight from her to, uh, to uh, Professor Bhattacharya, and then I will follow both of them with some closing remarks. Dr. Maria. It's my honor to be here today and present these papers, actually two papers on how the dependent coverage mandate affected the use of medical care. The first paper is on how it affected inpatient care, and the next paper is on how it affected uh, the use of emergency department. And I will focus more on the first paper because these two papers share similar methods and data sets.
Uh, I want to start this talk by showing this graph. So in this graph, um, this is the insurance age profile before the ACA. So on the vertical axis, we have uninsured rate. And on the horizontal axis, we have age. One of the most salient features of this graph is that the uninsured rate um, increases sharply at the age of 19, and it remains very high for those in it remained very high for those in early 20s. The uninsured rate was as high as 40% for those um, aged 23 to 25 before the ACA, and the mandate targeted this population and tried to increase the coverage. And here we are we are going to talk about how it affected um, various um, aspects of their lives. So this mandate requires insurers to allow young adults to stay on their parental policies until they turn 26 years old. And this mandate became effective on the first renewal date after September 23, 2010. There were efforts at the state level, which um, I will skip here. But here I want to mention that states law were weaker than the federal mandate for some several reasons. One of them is that self-insured plans, um, plans often offered by large employers, were exempt. The research questions we asked in this paper is how did the dependent coverage mandate affect the following three outcomes? The first set of outcomes is access and use of inpatient care. The second set is the health insurance profile of inpatient admissions. And the third is treatment intensity. Before going to, into the detail, I want to give you the overview of the results. First, we found that the number of young adults admitted to hospitals increased by about 3.5%. And we see larger effects among uh, inpatient admissions due to mental illness. Second, we found that the proportion of inpatient admissions covered by private insurance increased by six percentage points. Lastly, we did not find any significant effects on treatment intensity. Why is this research question important? As you all know, the full implementation of the ACA has extended insurance coverage among young adults substantially. However, there is limited evidence on how an insurance expansion due to this particular population affects the use of health services. Um, looking at the effects on inpatient care is important because inpatient care accounts for about 30% of healthcare costs among young adults. Uh, what do we know from the literature about how um, health insurance expansion affects the use of medical inpatient care? There are studies on Medicaid and Medicare expansions, and these studies found that expanding coverage increases the use of inpatient care, uh, likely due to the decreased price. There's also evidence from Massachusetts um, where nearly near universal health ex ex insurance expansion took place in 2007. One study found that there was no change in the number of inpatient admissions. And the other study focused on um, mental illness admissions among um, young adults. And they found either decrease or no change um, in these admissions. 
Last year, there are studies on um, how aging out of parental insurance or Medicaid affected the use of healthcare. And these studies found that losing healthcare, losing health insurance um, decreased the use of healthcare. So taken together, this um, evidence suggests that um, having insurance coverage either increase the use of inpatient care or the, there's no effects on the use of inpatient care. There's also literature on ACA-dependent coverage provision, which is growing right now. The relevant to this study is um, the literature on health insurance coverage. Um, health insurance coverage in a general young adult population increased by three to seven percentage points um, by the end of year 2011. There's, there are also are studies on medical care of the mandate. And Summers and his authors found that young adults became less likely to either delay or forego care due to costs after the mandate. The data we used came from the nationwide inpatient sample, um, Healthcare Cost Utilization Project, HCAP, um, conducted by AHRQ. This contains a 20% stratified sample of U.S. community hospitals, which is randomly drawn every year. And our data set includes uh, about 0.8 million numbers in patient admissions of young adults. In this study, we focus on numbers-related admissions um, following the literature. We have the very detailed information of each patient. We have um, demographic information such as age, gender, primary payer. We also have clinical characteristics such as primary and secondary diagnosis and procedures. To estimate the effects of this mandate, we use um, difference in difference methodology. We compare the changes in outcomes before and after the mandate between the control and treatment groups. Here, the treatment group is those aged 90 to 25, because before the mandate, uh, most insurance plans cover dependents until they turn 19 years old. Control group is those who are slightly older than the targeted group, uh, those aged 27 to 29. This methodology allows us to filter out any secure trends that affects both the treatment and the control group. So let's move on to our analysis. So in part one, we look at the effects on total admissions. And the hypothesis we had in our mind was that um, once young adults have insurance, they face lower price, and that could increase the use of inpatient care. The other uh, competing hypothesis is that once young adults have insurance, they have better access to outpatient care, and that could decrease um, the use of inpatient care. This is the time trends we get from our data. So the solid line is the number of inpatient admissions per hospital per quarter for the treatment group of those aged 19 to 25 years old. Aged, um, and the, um, the other line is for the um, three control groups. So this is the number of admissions per hospital per quarter for those aged um, 27 to 29. And the first vertical line corresponds to um, 
first quarter of 2010 when the ACA was implemented. And the second line corresponds to um, the third quarter, the third quarter of 2010 when the mandate was implemented. And the third vertical line corresponds to the first quarter of 2011 when most plans had the first renewal date after the implementation date, meaning the mandate became um, binding for most of the plans. Uh, I would say it's difficult to see the effects of the mandate from these graphs. Um, so I want to turn to the regression results here. So the first column of this table shows that the effects on the number of all inpatient admissions um, among young adults. So this number is, so 0.25 indicates that compared to the control group, the number of um, inpatient admissions per quarter per hospital per each age increased by 0.25. And um, the average uh, of the number of admissions was 7.3 before the ACA among the treatment groups. So the 0.25 point estimates translate into 3.5% increase in the total number of inpatient admissions among the targeted young adults. We also found from the second column that the effects on ER admissions through the ER was not significant, and the 3ER was not significant, and the effects on the number of admissions that occurred that did not occur 3ER was significant. Next, we, I'd like to talk about the effects on the admissions due to mental illness, because mental illness is the number one reason for inpatient admissions among young adults other than um, birth-rated admissions. About uh, three quarters of lifetime cases of mental illness begin by age 24. This makes mental disorders the, the most prevalent chronic disease among young adults. Also, the previous studies find that the moral hazard of insurance is stronger in outpatient mental health care settings. So we hypothesize that having insurance could increase the use of um, inpatient care more among those with mental health issues. Here, uh, we found that the number of all admissions increased by 0.32, which is equivalent to 9% increase in total admissions. We also found that the increase in admissions through ER was significant, and the magnitude was about 11%. Um, now I want to move on to part two and talk about how the mandate affected insurance profile of um, inpatient admissions among young adults. So the hypothesis here is that since we found um, increase in private insurance among the general population, we assume that we would see increase um, in inpatient admissions covered by private insurance as well. And this is the time trends by age group. Again, the solid line corresponds to um, the treatment group. This is a ratio of um, young adults covered by private insurance. And we can see the sharp increase in the rate of young adults covered by private insurance right after the enactment of the implementation of the mandate. While there was a declining trend among the control group. 
um, similarly, there was sharp decrease in uninsured rate right after the implementation of the mandate. And there was some uh, decrease um, in the fraction of inpatient admissions covered by Medicaid. So these are from our regressions. The first column shows that the fraction of privately insured admissions increased by 6.0 percentage points. And there was a decrease of about three percentage points in the fraction of uninsured admissions. And there was also decrease in the fraction of Medicaid admissions, which is about 2%, 2 percentage points. Last year, I want to talk about the effects on treatment intensity. There are also two competing hypotheses as well. One possibility is that once young adults have insurance, they face lower price, and also they might have more disposable income because it is often the case that that parents pay the whole premium. So this could make them more likely to consume more care. Um, on the other hand, it is possible that uh, health insurers, private health insurers, restrict utilization by managing care or reducing reimbursement. And if that's the case, we would see decrease in treatment intensity. We measured treatment intensity by length of stay, number of procedures, and total charges. And we conducted analysis, um, which is similar to the analysis we conducted for the other two parts, controlling for demographic and clinical characteristics. And overall, we found not statistically significant effects on treatment intensity. Before concluding, I want to mention some limitations of this study. This is an early evidence which uses only um, the data from one year after the implementation. So this is a short-run effect, and the long-run effects could be different. For example, if people have insurance and they could get better care um, at an earlier stage, that could make them more health healthy and that could save costs. That these are not captured in this study. In conclusion of this study, we found that the number of young adults in patient admissions increased by 3.5%, and there was a large effect on mental illness-related admissions. We also found that the proportion of hospitalized young, young adults with private insurance increased by six percentage points, and there was no significant effects on treatment intensity. And I want to talk briefly about the second paper. Uh, so this is co-authored with Yagosa Anti at IUPUI, Kosai Simon at Indian University, and Ben Summers at Harvard University. And as I mentioned already, we use similar methods and found modest decrease in overall EDUs. Uh, the decrease was um, about 1.6% visits per 1,000 adults. So the magnitude is not huge, but there was um, significant effects. And also the decrease was concentrated among those who have less severe and urgent conditions, which indicates that uh, young adults became more efficient in terms of uh, seeking care. And there was no effect on visits due to urgent conditions or injuries, which makes sense because you know, if you have urgent conditions or injuries, you have to go to ED no matter 
uh, whether you have insurance or not. Consistence with the finding for the, from the earlier paper, we found that the fraction of ED visits by privately insured young adults increased and the fraction of ED visits covered by Medicaid or uninsured um, ED visits among young adults decreased. So from these papers, uh, we found um, that uh, young adult mandate increased the use of inpatient care, while it decreased modestly the use of ED. And this is only an early evidence which uses the first year um, after the implementation. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, so I'm going to talk about uh, about the, the costs of this uh, of this mandate. And uh, Saka did a fantastic job explaining what the mandate is. Uh, as, and, uh, and Michael will too, I think, uh, have some have some interesting remarks on it. But I, what, what I'm what I'm interested in is who bears the costs. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly motivated by this uh, by this question in large part because I think a lot of the public debate about uh, many many of the provisions of, of the ACA have been. Uh, have not focused on who pays, and in fact, in some ways, the ACA. Uh, so, so you know, the the you, most most people are familiar with these sort of uh, quotes from the, the politicians that 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 supported the ACA. Uh, they they painted a picture of essentially, in my in my view, a, a, a free lunch. Um, uh, you know, if you want to be a photographer or a writer or a musician, you're no longer prohibited from doing that because you can have access to health care. The idea, I mean, I think was, was aimed at young people saying, well, look, if you're 20, 24, 25 and you want, you don't, you don't, you know, want to, uh, you, you want to focus on something uh, you know, worthwhile, you know, artistic or something, uh, you, you don't need to worry about health care because the ACA will cover it for you. Um, and the dependent care mandate, in, in some ways, is sort of the, the heart of this, uh, of, of this promise to young people, is because up to age 26, you can get covered by your parents' plan. Um, and uh, the, 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 the problem is that if you, if, if you think about what the cost of, of uh, something, like who pays, it's actually a little bit complicated because health insurance in the U.S. is, for the, mo is, the most part, is tied to employment. So uh, let me just walk you through a very, very simple way to think about this. Uh, and the way to think, uh, I'm going to do it with a personal, personal example, uh, and, and we're going to do a hypothetical case. That uh, Think about some, uh, hiring me, and I can make you $100,000. If you hire me, I will, I will create $100,000 of revenue for you. Well, what would happen in a competitive market? Well, uh, if someone offered me $70,000, I'd say no, because someone else would come along and say, well, look, I can, I can offer you 80. The, the, the price would get bid up, my wage would get bid up, so in, in, a, in a standard labor economics, I would get offered $100,000, exactly equal to the marginal product. Anyone's taken economics was, has encountered this. But what if someone's offering health insurance at the same time? Like, let's say it costs $10,000 to insure me. Well, in that case, the most, the largest, the highest wage that anyone would be willing to pay me isn't $100,000 anymore. It's $100,000 minus the $10,000 for insurance. So 90. The key insight, the key theoretical insight is that when an employer offers you health insurance, they're not doing it for free. They're doing it by taking away wages from you on the other side. You're paying for your own health insurance that you get through your employer. Okay, so let's extend this principle to the dependent care mandate. If, if I make insurance more valuable in the sense that I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover your kids up to age 26, 
Well, that's not free. Someone has to pay for that. Well, it makes the, the, the cost of that insurance a little bit higher. In fact, I'll show you the, the, the talk is about exactly how much higher. And so that offsets, the, 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 that's the, that, that increase in the price of insurance is in part going to come from lower wages or, low, or, or smaller than, than, uh, than, uh, than you, would, you would, would have gotten uh, raises or something. Um, so that's the key, key idea and, and that, uh, underlying the paper is that the, the, the way that insurance is paid for in the employer-provided employer insurance system is through lower wages. Uh, it turns out that this isn't the only, uh, I'm not the first economist to have this insight. There's been many, many economists that have had this insight. So, so maybe most famously, Jonathan Gruber had a, a paper in the mid-90s where, where he showed that when uh, the mandate to, to cover you know, pre, uh, maternity benefits for, for, female, for women workers went into place, actually what happened is that the premenopausal women workers had lower wage increases than men and postmenopausal women. Right? So it's completely consistent with the idea that if you increase, um, if you have a mandate like this that incre increases the, 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 the sort of services that, or set of people that are covered by insurance, that's through the health insurance, through employer-based health insurance, what you get is lower wages to pay for it. Right? So workers pay for insurance, not employers. Um, and I have some work on, on obese workers. Uh, so, so it turns out that in firms, obese workers tend to have higher health care costs. In firms that have health insurance, there's a difference between uh, obese workers' wages and thin workers' wages. But in firms that don't have health insurance, there's no difference. Right? So, so Stanford, uh, because my BMI is 27, I, I'm, not, I'm not getting paid as much as I otherwise would at Stanford. That's, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm planning to sue. Um, OK. Uh, so let's get back to dependent care mandates. Um, so uh, as Michael mentioned, the, this has been a very popular idea. The idea is to, is, to, is to have young people covered through their health, their parents' health plan later in, in you know, not, not just up to age 18, but you know, all the way up to, you know, up to age 26. Uh, lots and lots of states have done this. Um, so the, the hardest part of this research project actually was just figuring out exactly which states had done, uh, had passed these laws. So you know, going back to 2006, Colorado passed a law. Um, all the way up to 2009, Wyoming, Wyoming passed a law. Uh, Wisconsin passed a law in 2010. Um, all of these laws, and when the ACA was passed in March 2009, uh, two, two, uh, 2010, um, March 2010, all of these law, uh, laws, in effect, became overridden by the ACA. And in fact, the problem with these state laws, if, if from one point of view, is that the state laws can only cover certain health insurance plans. Um, there's a federal law called ERISA that exempts large employers from these sort of state mandates. So Colorado could pass a, a law like this that says, okay, if you're, if you're an employer, you're offering insurance, you have to cover kids up to age 26 on that insurance plan, dependents up to age 26 on the insurance plan. But if you're a large employer, because of ERISA, you're exempt from the, that, that state law. The state law doesn't apply. When the ACA came into place, well, the ACA is a federal law. It's, it, it, exempt, it, it, it bypasses this ERISA exemption. So all of a sudden, all insure, all employers now have, if you offer insurance, you have to cover the employees of your, of your uh, uh, you have to cover the, the, the kids of your employees, right? Okay, so that's, that's the, basic, uh, the basic idea. Um, right, 2000, it, now the, the, the law, the way it was written, it was passed in March 2010. Um, 
the, 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 there were no restrictions. So the only thing that mattered was your kid was up to age 26. It didn't matter if your kid had insurance through some other source. If your kid was working, they could still get insurance through your, through your you, the, the parents' uh, plan. It didn't matter if they were in, in college. So like my students, uh, before the ACA, almost all of my students at Stanford used to have health insurance through Stanford. Right, they, they, their parents would pay for extra health insurance through Stanford. Now none of them have insurance through Stanford. All of them have insurance through their parents. Um, uh, so, so there's no restrictions on marital status. So if you're, if, you're, if you're married at age 25 and your spouse has insurance, well, you can still get it through your, your, your parents. There's no restrictions on basically anything. So there's no ERISA exemption. And there's no, there, essentially, all that matters is you're 26 and under and your parents have insurance then you can have, you have insurance through your parents. And many, many firms complied early, even though the, 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 the implementation date was 2000, September 2010. As soon as the law passed in March, within a month or so, I mean, with, as soon as the, there was some opportunity to expand, insurer, insurers did. This is an incredibly popular provision. If you look at the polling data, this, this, this particular provision, along with, uh, you know, along with the, the uh, uh, along with one other, with, with the, um, the provision that that exempts uh, that that uh, uh, pre-existing conditions. These these are the two most popular provisions of the ACA. Lots of other unpopular things, but this was very popular. Um, okay, given all this, the surprising thing in this literature is that it is focused in large part on um, th essentially, in my view, is benefits only benefits. Now, not not that there aren't benefits, but I just it's 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 curious because given the reasoning that we health economists know about. It, it's clear that there ought to be costs. This is not a free lunch. And, and yet there's been very little work done to measure the, the, the cost and who pays. And in this case, it's complicated. It's, you can't simply look at the premiums you can't, of, 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 of parents who have, have health insurance. Uh, that's not enough because the economics leads you to say, well, look, I'm going to look at wages. And, and, and it's even more complicated because it's not just parents. If you work at a firm that have lots of other employees with kids that are between 21 and 26 or 18 and 26, health insurance and, and employer-based uh, in settings tends to be pooled. So if, if, uh, if you know, my, my kid's 26 and my, my, I start working for Cato, Michael might end up paying, right? So sorry, Michael, right, because it's pooled insurance. Uh, so the question is, how costly is the mandate? Uh, OK, so this is. Oh no! This is this is this is not going to be good. It, it looked prettier on my on mine. I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you in a second. Um, so let me just tell you how how uh, how, to, how to think about this, just as, as a back of the envelope uh, sort of a, a, a attack on the issue. So one one the first step is figuring out how much does it cost to pay for the care of, of people who are between 19 and 25 years old, 19 and 26 years old. Like, how much does it cost? Well, there's data sets. In fact, uh, uh, the, there's a data set called the Medical Expenditure Panel Survey that allows you to ask that question. Uh, so we just all, so what we did is we just calculated what does it cost to pay for every single 19 to 26-year-old health care for the 19 to 26-year-old. If you multiply by the number of, of, you want to multiply by the number of young adults expected to gain coverage. Well, that depends on one key number that's, not, that's hard to know, and that is crowd out. So for instance, my, my students the, 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 at, at Stanford, they, uh, they, they, they get coverage through their parents' plan. They didn't used to get it. They get, used to get it through Stanford. In a sense, they're not actually gaining coverage. They're just switching who's paying. They're switching from you know, paying to Stanford versus to going for the, through, uh, through their parents' plan. 
right? So in a sense, that's not real insurance. There are a few people who expanded, who had got new coverage, that didn't used to have insurance. They were between 19 and 26. But then because of this mandate, then they now get it through their parents' plan. Right, so that's that. So that's a number we don't know. So if if it's if someone who had coverage from another source but moved their parents' plan, that's a that's a measure of crowd out. Um, the other number is pooling, right? So you want to divide by the numbers who, of workers who will bear the cost. So and on the one extreme, if only the parents of the the people who have 18 to 26 year olds pay, well, then there's no pooling. On the other hand, if, if, if Michael ends up paying for my kids, just because I happen to work for, if I you know, start working for Cato, well, that tells you, what that does is it says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, that, to, that, that means that we're sharing, the, the, the denominator will be larger. There'll be more people paying together, right? Although Michael's getting no benefits, my kids are, but that's, that's, the, that's the basic idea. So, if you, so the numerator is the total costs. The denominator is the total number of people who pay. The numerator is affected by crowd out. The denominator is affected by pooling. All right, everyone, everyone, uh, everyone on the same page on this. So if if uh, if this wasn't so funky looking, you would. What the, the what I want you to look at is the uh, the upward sloping lines. The upward sloping lines. These give you bands of what what happens when under different assumptions about pooling and crowd out. So uh, on the on the x-axis is pooling. At zero, at zero, there's no pooling. The only people paying on the x-axis at zero are the people who have kids that are between 19 and 26 that are working. On the y-axis is crowd out. At, at zero, there's no crowd out. And so the only people that, that, that sign on are the new one. We're only counting the cost for the new people who sign on, not the people who previously had insurance through some other source. Um, and 100% crowd out is you're paying for everybody. right? So all of a sudden, there's this new, the whole, everyone signs on. Um, the, 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 the key idea here is that, uh, remember, the numerator is the total cost. That's the, the, now, as Craddock goes up, um, more and more kids sign on to their parents' plan. More and more kids sign on to their parents' plan. The denominator is the pooling is how many, how many workers pay for it. As, as, uh, as, as, as fewer and fewer workers pay for it, the higher the total cost on those workers that pay for it. Now, I don't, now the, the literature doesn't speak on these numbers, but what I'm going to show you is that, is that um, this blue band, this light blue band that you see between... Uh, right here, this 20%, this light blue band, and if you, it actually extends past this funky rainbow that somehow has come up on this. Um, uh, just, just have, no. um, this light blue band, it shows you the range of possibilities. Because what I'm going to show is that the estimates that we're going to show show that, the, about that, that it, it costs about $1,200 in wages, $1,200 in wages per year. That's consistent with... Uh, no pooling and 20% crowd out, all the way up to about 50% pooling and 100% crowd out. That little light blue band that, uh, that, 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 uh, that runs from here all the way up to the, to the top right. It's, it's in the paper if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're curious. Okay, so that's, ju that's just to set expectations. Um, here's, the, here's the empirical. The empirical strategy uh, relies on uh, a large nationally representative data set called the, the Survey of Income and Program Participation. Um, we, look at adult, uh, we, we look at adults that are 27 and up, because those are the people who are paying for health insurance. Um, and we, have, and we have about 750,000 observations on 81,000 people. There's three ideas of trying to measure this. So it's very similar. There's, there's a joke about, health econ about economists. Whenever there's a natural disaster or some other terrible thing that happens, our second thought is, I can, maybe, I, you know, I can write a paper out of this. Um, 
you know, so when the when the when when uh, when, when a tsunami hits the uh, the Indonesian coast, uh, our second idea is uh, well, I won't tell you what our first idea is. Um, so the so here's here's the idea. Uh, is it's a sim similar to Sacco's uh, idea you, is to compare states with these mandates before against states that didn't have these mandates in the pre-period and compare them against the states that have it before and after in the post-period. In the states that had the mandate before, the ACA didn't have as big an effect, right, because they already had a mandate than, than the states that did have it before. So the prediction is to expect earnings to fall in states without a mandate relative to states with a mandate because that's where the fuller effect happened. Uh, the second empirical idea is to compare small firms versus large firms. Because remember, ERISA exempts large firms. ERISA exempts large firms from the state mandates, but not the ACA. So the prediction is that the difference between workers in states with and without mandates should be stronger among workers at small firms, right? Because that's where the, the, mandate, the, the, the mandate hit. The third empirical idea is to compare the effect on wages of firms that offer health insurance than that, that, than that don't. Right, the effect of the mandate should be concentrated at firms that don't offer health insurance because if you're working at a firm that doesn't offer health insurance, then the mandate just doesn't apply to you. Right? Makes sense? Those are the three ideas. Uh, we, we throw all kinds of stuff into the regressions, just the standard stuff. Um, uh, the, 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 so let me just show you the, 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 the final results. Okay, so this is monthly wage effects, monthly wage effects. So based on the, uh, what we find is that uh, roughly speaking, it's about $100 decrease in wages relative to what would have been the case if the ACA mandate hadn't been in place. $100. Um, and the, the effects are concentrated at small firms exactly like you expect. It's about $133 at small firms. Uh, it's about $58 at large firms, but that effect is not statistically significant. All right, so $58 if at large firms. If you're working for a small employer, you're, because of the mandate, you're, you're, our estimates imply that you're paying about $133. Your, your wages are $133 less. You're paying $133 a month for this mandate. Um, what's the effect of, 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 of ESHI is employer-sponsored health insurance, employer-sponsored health insurance. So if you work at a firm with employer-sponsored health insurance, that's where exactly we should expect the cost to be, right? That's $160 a month. At a firm with no health insurance, no, no employer-sponsored health insurance, then it's $77, but it's not statistically significant. The only statistically significant effect is at firms with employer-provided health insurance. Uh, how about parents versus non-parents? So both, both of these are, are sort, of, you, it's sort of exactly what you'd expect. The, this is an interesting one. The effect on the wages of non-parents are larger than the effect on the wages of parents of kids between 19 and 26. What this suggests is that there's a lot of pooling at firms, right? At firms that, ha that, ha that have a, a mix of workers, some with kids and some without kids that, have that, and that are in that right age range. The, the workers without kids pay just you know, a fairly significant chunk of the, of the amount. There's a fair amount of pooling. Okay, uh, what about hours and employment effects? No, no statistically significant effects. It all runs through wages. This mandate by itself doesn't cause the uh, cause any uh, cause any effects. Let me now I have a, a, a minute or so, so let me just uh, do a couple of report on you a couple of checks. We have a large number of sort of sensitivity checks in the paper, uh, but let me give you one uh, one uh, a couple. Uh, one is uh, this is a large scale experiment in some sense. We we took advantage of every single state law in order to get our estimates. One thing, one other way you could do it is you could you could you could compare one state versus another state. So Colorado, what effect did Colorado have against Utah, which didn't have a mandate or something? Um, 
And you, in, in fact, you could do every pair, we, you could write a paper on every single pairwise natural experiment, comparing one state versus the other, right? If you do that, uh, by the way, this, this for, for the academics in the room, this is a fantastic opportunity to, to you can just like pull, pull each, each, each point on this, on this bar, bar graph is a paper waiting to be written. Just, you know, it's a, pair, a pairwise comparison. But uh, the, the problem for you guys if you try to do that is that we've already done all of the pairwise comparisons. And what we find is that the bulk of the effect tends to be, um, uh, tends, to, tends to be in, the, in you know, we find about $100. This is a very reasonable effect compared to what, what, what the bulk of the effects are. Um, there's very few, there's some pairwise comparisons produce that, that produce like, like a wage increase, uh, you know, like those negatives mean a wage increase in this sense. Um, but those are, those, are, those are not the bulk of it. So we're right, we're right in the middle of what we'd expect to be. Expect to be. So we're, we're giving you representative results. Um, another, okay, this paper, this, I hate tables like this because it has a crazy number of numbers on it. The only thing I want you to focus on is the fact that there's not a single star on any of the numbers indicating statistical significance. Because what this is, is a, a set of results where we pretend that the ACA was passed in September of 2008, run the same results and look for the wage effect. October 2008, run, run the same result, look for the wage effect. Essentially, it's like a negative placebo test. If we find significant results here, that would suggest that, that we have some, something spurious going on producing our results. But in fact, we find no statistically significant results. The only place you find statistically significant results is if you assume the ACA was passed when it actually was passed in 2010. And that's when you get the results we get. So um, there's, a, there's a, lot, a large number of sort of checks. Uh, I got 30 seconds, so let me just finish. Uh, earnings are about, uh, in our estimates, about $100 a month lower for workers as a result of the ACA's dependent care mandate. That doesn't measure the effect of all the other provisions of the ACA because people pay for those too. It's just we're focused on this one provision. Um, in fact, it's stronger for workers that are more affected by the mandate. And uh, there's no evidence that parents bear it versus rather than non-parents. Rather, there's more evidence that, that this is a general, it's, it's pooled. So if you work at a firm, with parents that have, health, have kids with the, that are in that right age range, you're probably paying for it as well. Um, and uh, so I think this is, is uh, I'll, I'll stop here since I'm, I think I'm almost done anyways. Thanks. OK, thank you, Jay. Um, got a few slides up there. Two, OK, here we are. All right. So. Uh, Thank you, Jane Asako. I, I, I wanted to start off by talking about you know, the strain of, uh, of thought that runs through the debate over uh, healthcare reform generally and the ACA or Obamacare in particular. And it goes a little something like this. Every other advanced nation has, uh, provides health insurance to all of its citizens, and they all do it for a fraction of what we spend on healthcare in the United States. The ACA or Obamacare emulates or tries to emulate what they do in other countries. Therefore, anyone who complains that Obamacare increases spending or premiums or imposes other costs is just a right-wing nut who doesn't understand that universal coverage lowers spending and doesn't increase spending. You can see this, uh, this, this same line of free lunch thinking in Bernie Sanders' proposal to put all Americans in, Medicare, in a Medicare for all-like plan. He presumes that, that it will somehow magically reduce healthcare spending because nations with single-payer systems spend less than we do in the United States. It doesn't seem to matter that in the U.S. Medicare program, despite being a single-payer system, it still pays far more on the elderly and disabled than any other system does. So while supporters might wish that universal coverage or Obamacare is a free lunch, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, there are costs. Obamacare imposes significant uh, costs on millions of Americans. Now those costs are hidden. They're hidden very well, as Jonathan Gruber 
helpfully explained, that is by design. Uh, they were hidden so that the law could get passed, but they are there. Now, the mirror image of this strain of thought is uh, another one that, uh, that's held by some Obamacare opponents who like to pretend that there are no benefits to the law. Certainly, not even the federal government could spend over $2 trillion over a 10-year period and not benefit somebody. So, uh, uh, so what we need to do is we need to have these sorts, of, uh, these sorts of inquiries into what this law is actually doing, what are the benefits and what are the costs if we're going to reach a reasonable judgment on whether uh, this particular millennial mandate or Obamacare uh, writ large is, 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 uh, is a good idea. So, and you can definitely see this in the debate over the millennial mandate. Uh, I, I've got that the entire mandate is right here, by the way. It's one sentence in this 2,000-page law. There's a little bit extra saying, yeah, we don't mean it to cover this or that, uh, and the secretary shall implement by regulations. But this is the entire mandate. Uh, it requires that all health plans cover dependents, uh, that that cover dependents, cover them up to uh, age 26, even if the kids aren't financially dependent on their parents, even if the kids don't live at home, even if the kids are married. Uh, and it took effect almost, unlike the bulk of uh, Obamacare, it took effect almost immediately after implementation, uh, six months to be exact, and a lot of insurance companies implemented it before September of 2010. Uh, when the law said they had to. Now, this is a supposedly popular provision of the law. As Jay mentioned, it ranks uh, at the top or near the top in terms of popularity. I don't know if you can read this tiny print from where you are, but suffice it to say the ex extension of dependent coverage uh, gets 76% support from independents and even Republicans uh, who are very sour on the law as a whole. They like this provision. And... Uh, and it uh, ranks a good bit higher than the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions that, uh, that Jay mentioned. The law is also widely, or this, this mandate is also widely viewed as a success. This is, this is from a brief that was published by uh, Health Affairs, the health policy journal, uh, funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that does a lot of work uh, supporting uh, health services research. Uh, they said the extension of, uh, of coverage to this population through this mandate is widely viewed as a success. Now, you would think, you would hope that these judgments by the public, by academics, would be the result of the careful weighing of the costs and benefits of this provision. Of course, if you thought that, you would be wrong. Uh, so we're, what do we know about the benefits of this, uh, of this provision? Well, we do know some things. Uh, thanks to uh, Sako and her, her colleagues, we know that the uh, number of uninsured increased by perhaps 900,000 or more uh, young adults. That, that, that's after accounting for the crowd out of, private, of other private insurance and, and, and even Medicaid. Uh, increasing the rate of insurance among people in this 19 to 25 year old age group from 66% to 70%. Uh, it resulted in greater consumption of hospital care, as Asako mentioned, a 3.5% increase, greater consumption of inpatient medical care, a 9% increase, uh, no, apparently no change in treatment intensity. Uh, uh, that suggests that those who gained coverage on, were, were, uh, were not on average sicker uh, than those uh, in this age group who already had coverage before this mandate. The share with, uh, of people in this age group who were uh, the share among those in this age group who were hospitalized, who had insurance, or, or who lacked insurance, dropped. So the share that had insurance increased by six percentage points. And there is evidence of, uh, of uh, reduced work hours. 
This would be consistent with the theory that, well, if you're getting coverage through your parents' insurance, then you're not going to work as many hours or work at a job that requires you to work full time so that you can get health insurance for yourself. You're not going to have to work for the health benefits. You may work less and, uh, and, uh, and uh, for other reasons. And there's certainly benefits to workers there. There's more leisure time. In fact, uh, another study by uh, two economists named Gregory Coleman of Pace University and Deval Dave of Bentley University, we were hoping to have one of them here uh, to present their results, they found uh, consistent with, uh, with uh, Asako and our colleagues that this measure did reduce labor supply among young adults. Uh, and that was associated with a reduction in the time spent waiting for care. This was plausibly a result of them switching from expensive ER care, which uh, uh, involves long waits, to less expensive primary care, where the wait for care is, uh, is waits for care are not as long. And it also left them with more leisure time, that these young adults devoted primarily to socializing, the, uh, these, these economists found, but also to other things like education and job search. And it was therefore welfare improving for this target population. So those are the benefits. But what do we know about the cost? Well, one thing we know about the cost is that those labor supply effects are a double-edged sword. Yes, those young adults didn't have to work as much because they don't have to work for the health benefits, so they have more leisure time and so forth. But that imposes costs on other people. When you encourage them to reduce their work hours, that means that they are not working as hard. And so employers and consumers who might have benefited from those labor market transactions don't benefit from those labor market transactions. There's lost productivity uh, if, if they reduce their, their work effort. Uh, there's also, as Jay mentioned, a hidden tax that it appears to be, it's plausibly, $1,200 per worker per year. That's a rather substantial hidden tax. And so what we have is a situation here where parents and their colleagues are being taxed to subsidize uh, their kids, their co-workers' kids, who could pay for their own health insurance, but are cutting back on their work effort because the government is making someone else pay. Now, I want to also talk for a moment about, before we try to weigh costs against benefits, I want to talk for a moment about another type of cost uh, that's a little harder to quantify, but I think is a very real cost of, of, of I think, of the millennial mandate and the, the ACA writ large. Um, well, uh, actually, let me, before I get to that, let me talk about some of the, some of the costs of, that we don't know, that, we can't, that, we can, that might be quantifiable, but we can't, uh, that we don't have information on right now. One of the purposes of, uh, actually, let me start with benefits. One of the purposes of health insurance is uh, to improve financial security. It's not just to improve health, it's also to, uh, to protect and improve financial security. So one thing we don't know about this law, one potential benefit is, did this millennial mandate improve the financial security of these young adults? Did it, uh, another purpose of health insurance is to improve health, did it improve the health of these young adults? We have information that it, imp that it increased healthcare utilization, but that is not the same as saying that it improved health outcomes for these folks. The Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, which is a large randomized controlled study assigning some, some uh, low-income adults to receive Medicaid, others not to receive Medicaid, found that even with increases in healthcare consumption, there were no discernible improvements in physical health outcomes. So it's a big question mark over whether this uh, millennial mandate improved the health of the target population, even those who received uh, coverage as a result of this, this mandate. Uh, and there are also unknown costs. 
So we don't know how much this millennial mandate has affected premiums. Jay presents some plausible estimates of how much it has reduced wages. That might suggest how much it's, a, it's, it's increased health insurance costs, but we can't, we can't know that for sure. Uh, and we don't know if, this hit, if and to what extent this hidden tax has made workers less financially secure or reduced their leisure time relative to if they had received that $1,200 as an increase in their salary. So now I want to talk about that other category of costs of, 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 uh, uh, that's, that's, that's a little more abstract and difficult to quantify, and that is, I, I would call them the, the cost of path dependence. If you think about what, uh, you have to think about what was Congress really doing here when it enacted this patch, this, uh, this millennial mandate, as well as the ACA itself. And let's, let's jump all the way back in time to the early 20th century. Now, what was happening then was medicine was becoming uh, more, it was making advances. Uh, med doctors were able to treat and cure more and more ailments, and it also got more expensive at the same time. And as that was happening, health insurance, or what they called sickness insurance, Began a transformation. It was it began to transform from an insurance product that just covered the lost income that you would suffer when you got sick because you couldn't work, to uh, an insurance product that actually covered the cost of the illness or the cost of the treatment that you were receiving for your illness. And so, while this was happening in the early part of the uh, of the twentieth century, rather than allow the market for this new product that we call health insurance to innovate and make health insurance more secure. The government intervened and put its thumb on the scale with several steps that favored a particular type of health insurance, employer-sponsored insurance. And these include wage and price controls that were imposed in World War II. These include a tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance that uh, was really set in stone in the middle of the 20th century. But in both cases, the government was putting its thumb on the scale in favor of a type of insurance that is horribly insecure, a type of insurance that you can only get if you work for the right employer, if you can work, first of all, and if you work for the right employer, a uh, type of insurance that you lose when you can't work anymore, that you lose it when your employer goes under, you lose it when your employer drops coverage, you, can, you lose that coverage when you retire, and it leaves people in these situations uh, who have a High, who lose that coverage when they have a high-cost illness, uninsurable. So it really fuels this problem of pre-existing conditions. And by some measures, this is a form of insurance, employer-sponsored insurance, that leaves people less secure than the individual market did uh, before, uh, or, or gives people less secure access to coverage than the individual market did before Congress enacted Obamacare. And, the, and, and viewed in that context, the millennial mandate and the ACA, more broadly, are attempts to clean up the meds that the government created by favoring this one type of health insurance. It's an attempt to try to catch the people that are falling through the cracks in the system of employer-sponsored insurance that the federal government encouraged. So, uh, so we're a little here like the old lady who swallowed the goat. We swallowed the goat to catch the dog, the dog to catch the cat, the cat to catch the bird. We are constantly trying to come up with yet one more government intervention to solve the problems that were created by the last government intervention. And so one of the costs of the millennial mandate and the ACA is that we are staying on this path of patching up the last ham-handed government intervention with even more ham-handed gov government interventions. And I'd say that these interventions are... Uh, the, the millennial mandate and Obamacare are ham-handed because it, even with these measures in place, young adults don't have access to continuous coverage. And everyone, uh, uh, 
does not have access to continuous coverage. Young adults still get dropped, even with a millennial mandate, young adults still get dropped from their parents' coverage. Now it just happens at age 26 instead of at age uh, 19 or 21. Where they're either stuck, where they're uh, again stuck with the same, uh, with the bad options that the government has given them. Either they can enroll in employer-sponsored insurance, where they can lose their plan when they get sick or when they change jobs, and uh, uh, or when they get sick and can't work anymore when they change jobs. They can enroll in an Obamacare exchange or or other, the Obamacare Medicaid expansion, where they lose their health plan when their income rises or when their income falls or when adverse selection puts their plan out of business. And even if they don't lose their plan, the quality of their Obamacare coverage will progressively erode. Uh, and uh, they can also lose their health plan uh, when they become disabled or hit, or they will lose their health plan when they hit age 65. This is not continuous coverage. This is not seamless and secure access to, to medical care. Americans remain stuck in a system with all sorts of government-created gaps and cracks for them to fall through. Instead of, and so one of the costs of the uh, millennial mandate is that instead we're not creating a system where if you want you can have continuous coverage through the same insurance uh, uh, scheme or carrier not only from emancipation to grave but from cradle to grave and where insurers don't renege on their commitments to the sick in fact the system uh, where insurance where insurers compete to cover the sick and how to create that sort of system I think is a conversation for another day it draws a lot from the work of an adjunct scholar that we have here at the Cato Institute. His name is John Cochran. He's also a colleague of yours out at Stanford. Now he's at the Hoover Institution as well. Um, uh, but that is, I think, maybe the biggest cost of this uh, of the millennial mandate, the ACA broadly, is that we are staying on this path of trying to patch up the last uh, uh, mistakes that the government made and making more mistakes along the way. So to return to, uh, to this law's popularity, I think I'm going to go ahead and skip that slide. We, I don't think we can say whether this mandate is, uh, is really popular because we, we haven't made a serious attempt to weigh the costs uh, against the benefits of this law. Uh, we, you know, consumers, if you look at polling that says that, uh, that the public likes this law, they're really meaningless because all you're asking them about are the benefits of this, of, uh, I'm not the law, but the millennial mandate. All you're asking them about is the benefits, the presumed benefits of the millennial mandate. You're not asking them about the cost because they don't see, there's no uh, dedicated tax that shows them what the cost of the millennial mandate is. There's no premium surcharge that they're paying, so they know how much the millennial mandate is costing them. They don't even see the increase in the total premium of the millennial mandate. Uh, uh, or they don't even see, workers don't even see the increase in the total premium themselves because for the most part, they're not the ones who are paying uh, for their health insurance. Uh, their employer pays it, even though, as Jay mentioned, they bears the cost. They don't even see the full premium, and they don't even see the reduction in their wages that results from the imposition of this mandate, because how are they to know what their wages would have been if this mandate hadn't been imposed? So it's really, uh, uh, I think, the polls that tell us that this mandate is popular are really meaningless in the same way the polls that tell us that Obamacare's pre-existing condition provisions are popular are likewise meaningless. This is a this is a graph that uh, a chart that I put together to illustrate the results of a poll that uh, that the Reason Foundation uh, conducted with uh, uh, with Roop in order to try to tie the cost of the ACA's ban on discrimination against pre-existing conditions. That was a uh, a measure that polled in the 60s and 70s in the in the Kaiser poll that I showed you earlier, but ties that those presumed benefits of the law i.e. sick people get health insurance, to the known costs of that provision of the law. 
The so you'll see in the first columns, the first two columns, that the measure itself, when you just ask about the benefits, the public favors it, 52% to 39%. That's actually a little low compared to the other polls that, uh, that have measured the, the, the popularity of this provision. But once you start asking about the associated costs, you find that, that uh, support for this law flips to opposition. If it increases wait times, people would oppose it. If it increases premiums, a similar number of people would oppose it. Similarly, if it increased taxes, it actually does all of those things. And that changes the public's perception of this supposedly popular provision of the law. But I think what's most telling is that if you ask people, what if this ban on discrimination against pre-existing conditions were to reduce the quality of care that you and your family receive? Narrow support for this law flips to five to one opposition to it. Five to one opposition. And lest you doubt that this, this provision of the law is lowering uh, health care quality, this is something that's very much a concern of really a lot of uh, academics and supporters of the law. I was just reading in uh, Health Affairs yesterday, I think it was a, a post on their blog that said, quote, there's still ways for insurers to avoid the sickest people, the ones who might have future costs in the tens of thousands or more of dollars. Some methods appear innocuous, just aim advertising at healthy people who use gyms. Others are more controversial. Develop networks of physicians or hospitals that discourage access to care with, for example, fewer oncologists. This type of erosion of the quality of care that people receive is happening in the ACA exchanges. That's what people are talking about when they complain about the uh, exchange plans narrow networks, when they complain about high cost sharing for specialty uh, drugs and other expensive drugs. So these are the only sorts of polls about the popularity of these provisions that are meaningful. I would like to see a polling question. And, and I should mention that this, this poll was conducted by uh, a, a, a scholar who's now at the Cato Institute, Emily Eakins, uh, at my behest, I asked her to tie the, the pre-existing condition provisions benefits to its costs. And I hope that they or some other pollster will do the same thing with the millennial mandate. Instead of just asking, do you support uh, this requirement that health plans cover dependents up to the age of 26, ask them first that question, but then follow up with a question uh, that asks them, would you still support this requirement if it meant that, you're, that you would pay a $1,200 hidden tax, or your wages would be reduced by $1,200, or the wages of you and all of your coworkers would be reduced by $1,200? I'd also like to see uh, polling that, asks, that, that, that compared that option to covering uh, young adults, or the young invincibles, as they're often called, to a, uh, to a market alternative uh, the popularity of that approach to a market alternative that was actually being unrolled by United Healthcare in 2008 and 2009. And Jay and uh, Asako and I were talking about this uh, before we began uh, the event. United Healthcare unrolled uh, or unveiled and got uh, approved for sale in 25 states, something that I call pre-existing conditions insurance that would insure young adults against pre-existing conditions probably for about $1,000 per year, allow them to buy the right to purchase health insurance no matter how sick they got. Even if they got cancer, they could buy insurance at standard rates. I'd like to see the millennial mandate, the popularity of the millennial mandate pulled against the popularity of market-based approaches like that, that would allow parents to, for the same amount that this millennial mandate was costing them, buy essentially insurance protection for their kids while their co-workers would get that $1,200 raise that they should have gotten. So, uh, so with that, I want to wrap up and, uh, uh, the, uh, the presentations and uh, ask uh, the audience here and the audience uh, that's watching online uh, if they have any questions for our panel. 
if you want to ask a question via Twitter, the way to do that is with the hashtag Millennial Mandate. If you want to ask a question, uh, if you're here in the audience, you'd like to ask, us, uh, to ask a question, you can do so through Twitter. Or you can just raise your hand. If, when you do raise your hand, I would ask that you make sure uh, that you uh, let us know who you are, uh, 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 if you have any relevant affiliations, and make sure that your question is uh, brief and a question. So with that, I will take the first question from uh, Robert Book. Hi, thanks. I'm Robert Book of HSI Network. Um, I have uh, two questions. One's very brief, so I hope you'll allow me to. And it's, Jay, a lot of uh, a lot of employers that offer insurance offer two separate packages to employees. They'll offer the uh, employee only, or they'll offer the dependent, the employee plus dependent. Is there any difference in the wage effect or the premium effect that that differentiates between employers who have dependents, period, and employers who are just insuring themselves, regardless of whether they have children or what age they are? Data we use, the SIP doesn't make that distinction, so I can't directly answer that question. Um, the, the, in general, the, the uh, premiums and, and the, 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 the uh, incidence of employer insurance is, is it's, it's, it's experience rated, pooled for the entire firm. So when one employee, whether they're on the, the, the employer-based, the, the, the with the dependent coverage or not without, with the dependent coverage, the, the experience rating generally applies firm-wide. So I think that the, 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 uh, if my prior is it would be pooled even if you'd had the single, the, 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 the single insurance. Um, for the most part, though, fam, anyone with dependents will have the, unless, they, unless their spouse also works, will have the, 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 the family plan. Right. Uh, as you can see, the, the, and our estimates imply that even, if, that even ki uh, p parents without kids, uh, I'm sorry, workers without kids of that age range see a, f a substantial wage hit. Okay. And the second question is, uh, when talking about the uh, premiums in the ACA exchange market, people talk about how the, the premiums are going up because young people aren't enrolling. Isn't this mandate part of the reason that young <laughs> people aren't enrolling in their own plans? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think uh, uh, it's... As an academic, it's really tempting to look at one piece at a time. But I think the gist of your question is exactly right. I think you want to look at this as a, as a, as a whole and see. Because you, you can say, well, look, um, I've, I've seen people say, well, look, uh, the, the costs on, on the exchanges are lower, and that's a success. Or, but, but then people worried about not, not expanding insurance coverage. I mean, I think you have, to, you have to look and see what all the different trade-offs are. And I think you highlight exactly, your, your, your question highlights a really important trade-off, right? So... If someone's 22 years old, their health costs generally would be low. One of the financing, actually hidden financing mechanisms of the ACA is to, is to require, the individual mandate requires people who, are, who otherwise wouldn't be inclined to, to sign up for insurance to sign up. Uh, the reason why that's, that's a way to fund, fund is essentially there's two aspects of insurance. There's a, there's a, if, if, if you and I are both have the same health status, if, if, you know, we have the same health risk, but we don't know what's going to happen to us next year. We sign up. That's insurance. That's we're pooling our risk together. The other thing insurance does is it, it, it especially under the ACA, is it transfers money from people who are low risk to high to people who are high risk. It's a transfer. That's that's a hidden tax. I think generally people like the idea of progressive transfers. I mean, that's like, I think a lot of the, a lot of the, to the extent people support the, the ACA, that's really where it, where, but the problem is that it messes up the, the insurance market. It imposes that tax through that mandate and causes a lot of the kind of distortions that Michael was talking about. Um, now, whether you like, if you don't like the, I, th I think the, the key thing to me is, is transparency. 
let's have a debate about the, the, what the right transfer ought to be from low risk to high risk. And, let's, and then let's, let's, let's structure the insurance market so that it does what it does well, does what it does best, in principle anyways, is, is, which is to pool X anti-risk together and not ask the insurance market to do something it's not good at, which is transfers. That's why you need these mandates. The reason why these mandates exist is because people don't want to, don't want to do those transfers. They want to get out of it. And so if you, don't have, if you have a mandate like this, uh, the, it's, a, it's a response to a failure caused by the fact that you have this, you know, I, I didn't realize how unpopular it was when she told people what the costs were. That's, that's, that's very interesting. But what I would have thought was a popular, popular vision, once you have that in place, um, you cause these distortions. And that, then that leads to all kinds of other unpopular things. Sorry for a long answer to your question. And uh, on, that, um, on that question, uh, the reason we uh, put that question together uh, on, on that poll question was uh, that Emily Eakins had done some research on this and tried to find the last time that any pollster had ever tied the benefits of those pre-existing condition provisions to or, or, or the idea of banning discrimination against pre-existing conditions. Uh, to the costs was 1994. It was during Clinton care. That was the last time any pollster had e ever bothered to ask a responsible question about what is really the centerpiece of the ACA. And during the entire uh, debate over the ACA, I can't remember what the date was on that, um, on that, on that question she asked. It might have come, I, I believe it came after the ACA. Yeah, it was March of 2012. We had this entire debate on the ACA where no pollster answered that question. And I even confronted some you know, Democratic pollsters and said, Made this case. You're 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 putting out these data, claiming that this this uh, this measure is popular, but you're only asking about the benefits. Um, it, it and that's and uh, they can't be divorced from the cost, and that question is meaningless, and they didn't they didn't care. I mean, I think in, in general, the the my, uh, when I reflect back on the AC, on the debate around the ACA, uh, the a lot of the, the a lot of the problems came because I, I, and a lot a lot of the disappointment has come i think partly because the costs weren't made clear in fact i think the law in some ways designed to to hide those costs but who pays like the, you know the, the uh, this 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 man this this dependent care mandate is only one one aspect of that i think a lot of the a lot of the transfers that happen rather than having a, an honest public debate over, over which of these transfers ought to happen we instead uh, put in provisions that, uh, as, as Michael said, hide where those costs actually are. And I'd love to see a lot more health economics work to, to actually make those clear, because I think that there's a lot of scholarship that needs to happen to really uh, to elucidate where the, where the costs are coming from. Well, that gets to a question that we were uh, discussing uh, in the green room earlier. And I have a question for you, Jay, which is if, if you were to do a literature survey, that uh, tallied up all the studies since the enactment of the ACA uh, that measured costs and benefits, and you put the, and you, which do you think you, there would be more of studies, uh, economic studies of the benefits of this law, or economic studies of the costs of this law? Yeah, I mean, I think as I showed you in that in that slide, Michael, that uh, the, with the literature view, that a lot of the, the focus has been on the benefits. Like, there's there's so many papers on coverage, and it's utterly unsurprising to me that if you if you if you pay for coverage, people will get coverage, right? That's essentially what the ACA does. It puts a lot of subsidies on coverage. That's not at all surprising. But, the, but much, of, much of the academic effort has been on trying to pin down what the coverage numbers are. Um, I, I, it's not that I'm saying that's a legitimate thing to look at, but I think uh, a, fuller expand, like a fuller set of things to look at would include 
uh, you know, sort of who, who's who's paying for the individual mandate? Uh, the, 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 who's, you know, I've, I've done the stuff on dependent care mandate, but just what are the costs and who bears them? I mean, I think that's the fundamental question. We don't really yet know the answer because it's such a complicated law, and there's been much less e academic interest in that than I think there's been warranted. I've got a question for Asako then. Uh, when um, you report that there's no change in treatment intensity uh, among uh, among those who gained coverage as a result of the dependent care mandate, uh, what do you what what does that imply to you? I think I drew the or uh, I said it suggests that those who gained coverage weren't on average sicker. I want to give you a chance to agree with that or disagree with that or give me your take on that. Um, <clears throat> so I think we were interested in whether the changes in the I mean the changes in the care. Um, occurred at the intensive or extensive margin, and what we had. Or could you could you talk directly into that? <clears throat> we were interested in whether the amount of care con consumed um, changes on an intensive margin or an extensive margin. So intensive meaning um, um, extensive meaning you know somebody who didn't use care before start to use more care, and extensive means somebody who used that care before used more care, given that they have admitted. So yes, so, so we found that you know when we controlled for, so we didn't find any uh, effects on the extensive margin, um, whether we controlled for clinical characteristics or where, you know, regardless of whether we controlled for clinical characteristics or not. So what we found was that, you know, as you mentioned, there was no change in the um, composition of health status. You know, we would see um, the changes in intensive um, margin. Um, we would see um, increase in on extensive margin um, after, uh, without controlling for clinical characteristics, if people became more, you know, people who came are more sicker, but we didn't see that. Um, and after controlling for clinical characteristics, we didn't see any change, which implies that um, you know, it's not that, you know, doctors started to provide more intensive care because you have insurance, or it's not that, you know, you started to consume more care because now you have insurance. Did you answer your question? I think so, yes. In the first row, sir? <laughs> Lou Gagliano, uh, I do healthcare policy advising. And one of the things that uh, I think that uh, is changing is changes of behavior. And changes of behavior, particularly the drive where good clinical care is given, are important. And I think that uh, over time, we're going to see that things like charging hospitals for readmissions when they don't do good care the first time and infection controls and where healthcare plans send their patients to do good surgery as opposed to not good surgery and measuring outcomes is critically important. And I think the whole revolution of the information that is now available will drive that. And over time, the longitudinal care that our population will get will be better because of it. And a lot of these are because of some of the regulations that have happened. So could. Uh, it is are any of you seeing that how care decisions are are guided is having an effect on this principle? So I, I can speak to this. So uh, 
in, in Medicare, there's, there's been an, uh, an interesting, very interesting experiment. That, uh, Medicare is the health insurance for the elderly. Um, you know, it's a big, big, big federal program, as, as Michael mentioned. Um, the, 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 the experiment is to, is, to, is to encourage the formation of accountable care organizations which have coordinated care coverage. Um, I have to say that the, the results have been fairly disappointing to date. In part, I think because the market isn't well set up for that for uh, for having those kind of coordinated care decisions. So, if you have a diabetic patient, you're going to need an endocrinologist, you're going to need a cardiologist, you're going to need an internal medicine doctor. Um, very often, th those are those are separate entities; they're not connected together. So, if I do a bad job as an internal medicine doctor and they end up at a cardiologist, well, I'm not going to face the cost of that the way that the, the the system is set up. The ACOs are designed to create those kind of coordinated care incentives, but it hasn't really taken off. In my view, I think a lot of that has to do with the way that the price, in, in a way that uh, we, we pay essentially on a fee-for-service basis for, for, for physician care. Um, and so those kind of incentives won't happen. Those incentives to coordinate won't happen unless my actions as an internal medicine doc are affected by the people I refer my patients to. I mean, in some sense, you have to create a price system that that inter, that, that pays for that kind of inter, interaction, uh, almost organically, uh, in a way that I mean, the, the, uh, there's there's an opportunity. So, like the the there's this law called MACRA that was passed in 2014 um, that changes the way that that allows the CMS to change the way that it pays pays doctors. Um, those those have enormous consequences for how private private insurers also pay doctors. So, I think a lot of the innovation is going to come. Um, in the price system that to encourage that kind of coordinated care. I think, but to date, I'd say I, I, I'm disappointed. Um, I've got a question then uh, for both Jay and Asako. Uh, it, Coleman and Dave uh, st found that the uh, dependent care mandate was associated with a reduction in time spent waiting for care. As I mentioned, they said that was plausibly the result of less care received in the emergency room, more care received in primary or urgent care settings. I wanted to see if uh, either of both of you have comments on, on, on the plausibility. Is, that, is there any real evidence of it? Is that, or is that purely an inference that they're drawing? I'd love to hear Osako's thoughts on that since she found, uh, she actually studied the ER effects. Um, I think it's, it's plausible, but you know, if you spend more care for an outpatient, you have to go to the office more often, so it could increase uh, you know, the amount of time you spend at the office. So it's interesting that we see more effects of the reduce from this time spent in ER. So yeah, so in other words, you, what you found was reduced time in the ER. Presumably that means that they, they as I think as Michael, you mentioned, that they, 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 could, they could get outpatient care and to, to replace it. And you spend less time waiting for that because you can make an appointment right. in advance. So that, I mean, that makes sense, some sense. And uh, then one question for you, Jay. Uh, the key insight for, behind your study is of, of the cost of this, of this mandate is that the incidence of health benefits uh, falls on labor, that workers pay for the cost of their employer-provided health insurance um, through, well, at least the employer portion of their employer provided health insurance th through reduced uh, salary or other compensation. And that's because in a, uh, well, it's because of the effects of a competitive labor market, but uh, the 
generally what economists think is that in a competitive labor market, the incidence of those benefits will fall on the people who benefit from them. Now, one of the things that you found in your study is that there's a larger effect of the millennial mandate on non-parents than on parents. Non-parents are not the ones seeing benefit here. Parents are the ones who are seeing benefits here. Their kids get covered. They don't worry about that. Their kids have more financial security, presumably, maybe better health. Uh, but non-parents, aside from some warm glow that they'll get from knowing that their, uh, that their co-workers, uh, adult children are being covered, they don't receive any benefits. So I'm wondering, uh, you, you attributed that to effect to pooling. You're, you, you say, well, there's a, there's a large uh, num- uh, amount of pooling here, and so the costs of, uh, of this mandate are being distributed uh, across all employees and even born uh, more heavily by non-parents. But is another explanation here that there's something wrong with the way you, uh, you research this question, the way uh, uh, you did your estimates, because, uh, because economic theory would predict that the costs of this mandate would fall more heavily, at least more heavily, if not entirely, on parents rather than non-parents? I, mean, I, think, I think the key, that's a great question, and I think it relates back to, to Robert's question. I think the key insight is that, um, is that when we think about insurance, we think about if you think about actuarially fair insurance, what does that mean? That means that if I have a high risk ex ante, my premium is going to be higher. But employer provided health insurance does not work that way. The premium increases are not based on the individual's risk in general. It's, it's, it's experience rated. So it's like the risk of the firm. The fir- of the, you look at the firm and say, the, they look and say, okay, well, what, how much did the whole firm spend last year? Well, we'll increase the premiums in that way. And in fact, there are regulations that prohibit uh, in firms from charging individual level premiums, individual actuarially fair premiums. Uh, so it, it, all of the push in employer-provided health insurance is toward pooled, pooled coverage. So it's not, in some sense, that's not surprising. Uh, the, the only, the main, I, th- I said, I was surprised by the magnitude of the effect, um, which is why I did that that uh, that 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 colored graph just to, sh- to just to get some sense of what kind of assumptions might produce this this such a large effect. Twelve hundred dollars is a big number, um, and the key the key thing there is that is that uh, to me is is really it's the numerator. Lots and lots of uh, people. Who used to be, you know, between twenty, who were twenty-one to twenty-six years old, eighteen to twenty-six years old, who used to be on some other insurance, moved on to their parents' plan. So the the amount of money that other the workers had to pay to cover that increased pretty substantially. It's not because of an expansion in coverage. If if all that happened was that it was that young adults who previously didn't have insurance now have insurance through their parents' plan, then the effect size would have been much smaller. If you combine pooling with the fact that lots and lots of people jumped from their, whatever coverage they had before to their parents' plan, that's how you get a result like that. It's the numerator, not the denominator. The denominator of pooling doesn't surprise me. It's that numerator, the crowd, the amount of pe- the number of people who said, okay, I don't want to get insurance through my, my, my college, or I don't want to get insurance. I, I'm getting this crappy insurance, or I'm getting no insurance at all. I'm getting very little insurance at all, you know, some mini-med plan. Um, I'd rather be on my parents' plan. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the surprising thing. It didn't actually have the intended effect. What it did is it moved a lot of people who had insurance before to their parents' plan. It didn't just move people from uninsurance to insurance, I think. But the, it, the thrust of your work on 
obese workers and Jonathan Gruber's on the maternity mandate is that, yeah, while there is that pooling story and there is uh, some pooling that occurs in employer-based plans, yeah, it's so not as mu- there's not as much pooling there as you would think if you just read the federal regulations about how you can't charge different employees uh, different premiums for the same plan. You have to charge them all the same. And the reason why there's not as much pooling is because of the other compensation adjusts. And this is, and that's the other compensation is the twelve hundred dollars that you're measuring. There's, there's, but there's a bigger adjustment here where we would expect not to find it, which is on non-parents. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the key, uh, the key thing. That's a, another fantastic question. And I think the key thing there is that, the, in, uh, as, as you say, Michael. So let me, let me, uh, let me flesh that out. On some bases, things that are easy to observe, my body weight or something. Um, or you know if you're if you're if you're if you're a woman that's childbearing age, it's much easier to have this sort of uh, wage effect to, to in effect undo the pooling. On other bases, it's harder, right? So I don't know how many of my colleagues have kids that are 21, 26, and neither does HR really, unless maybe they do now thanks to this mandate. Um, so it's hard. It's a little harder to do that to 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 allow to. It's a little harder for the wage system to undo that pooling. To, to undo the undo the pooling when it when the criteria on which you might undo the pooling are harder to observe. So, like I think, uh, being childbearing age or being obese, those are observable. And and in fact, what happens is the wage system undoes the pooling. Here, what we're finding evidence is that it, is that the uh, wage system doesn't undo the pooling. That you still have the pooling that's sort of in effect mandated for employer provided insurance. Um, but you get, uh, and so, so, so you get the, all, the costs are shared across all of the workers, whether you have kids or not of that age range. Are, are there other possible stories, though, where um, they, uh, the, the what, what, one story that comes to mind is that the non-parents are different from the parents, it, probably in a number of ways. One of them is uh, probably age, another experience. And if uh, being a parent is correlated with seniority uh, within a firm, and uh, let's say that the firm it, uh, it would like it to be able to adjust wages downward for its less senior people because the labor market there is, is, um, is, is, uh, is such that they, they feel that they're overpaying those, uh, those entry-level or mid-level workers. Could they have used... Uh, Proxies. Could, could, this, could, this, uh, could you be picking up... Um, the uh, you know their decision to give those uh, lower wage workers smaller raises or no raises, while the um, or the less senior workers smaller raises or no raises, while the senior workers are getting larger increases, uh, and it's uh, and it appears that it's the effect of the mandate because seniority is so highly correlated with having with being a parent. Yeah, so we we uh, we we observe uh, years of labor market experience in the data. We don't observe years in the firm, so we can't address that question directly. But we do adjust for age of the worker and years in the labor market, and various and various other things you think would be correlated with the, with the, with your question. I think I think it's it's unlikely that 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 particular mechanism is explaining the result. I mean, I think I can I can think of other. Uh, uh, it, it would have to, it would have to be something very particular about um, having kids in that age range that would have to explain it. 
that's co that's un that, that that's that's correlated with with health status. Like maybe maybe uh, you're worried you, you, because you have kids that are just you know failed to launch. You're worried sick or something. Or something well, and it, and it is well, the fact that it is this age range would yeah. suggest even more seniority. Because if you've got uh, if you've got a kid, kid age 19 to uh, 25, you're going to be older than if you have a kid. You know, in general, on average, you're going to be older than if you so have. We, so a we kid do adjust for the age of the worker. Zero to age 18. So we adjust for the age of the worker. So it's not, that's, that's I can't. It, but it, but it, but I, the spirit of your question is is is, is certainly possible. It's, it's possible that that the parents of kids 19 to 26 differ in some unobserved way that we don't observe. And we try to adjust, best to adjust for a lot of things about because the, the SIP actually has a lot of very interesting things about the workers themselves that we we include in the regression. You know, like education, all, all kinds of stuff that you would include in a standard wage regression. So it's not that it would have to be something non-standard yeah, okay. for the story to work. All right. Well, I think that our time is up. So I want to thank our panelists and thank our audience for for coming. And. Um,